0: On this week's episode, we'll take a deep dive into Shakespeare's oceanic metaphors. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger director. Summer is coming to a close here in the Northern Hemisphere, and that means the start of another academic year awaits us. But before we have to leave the beach behind, we thought we'd bring you a dispatch from the seaside, specifically the part of Long Island Sound where Professor Steve Mentz of St. John's University swims each day at high tide. Mentz's work draws our attention from the green world of the land to the blue of the ocean. He's the author of several books of criticism that connect literature with marine ecology. He wrote the volume Ocean for Bloomsbury's Object Lessons series as well as a critical study of shipwrecks. His most recent book is called An Introduction to the Blue Humanities. For Mentz, the ocean represents an unforgiving, inhospitable environment. We can visit it as swimmers, but we can't live there. And as the sea level rises, it forces us to adapt or get out of the way. Mentz devoted his first book on this watery theme to Shakespeare, published in 2009, at the bottom of Shakespeare's ocean picks up on oceanic themes at work in his plays. As a new maritime power, England in the 16th and 17th centuries was gripped by sea fever. In plays such as The Tempest, Othello, and King Lear, Mentz finds traces of this oceanic obsession. Mentz has collaborated with the Folger on several projects. In 2010, he curated an exhibit at the Folger called Lost at Sea, the Ocean in the English Imagination, 1550-1750. And in 2019, he co-organized a conference for the Folger Institute called Creating Nature, Pre-Modern Climate and the Environmental Humanities. Here's Steve Mentz in conversation with Barbara Bogave.
1: I know you're a big swimmer. Did you come up with the idea to write this book while you were swimming in an ocean?
2: You know, that's a good question. I'm not sure if I had the idea to write this book while I was swimming, but I certainly sort of worked over and refined many of the sentences in that book and in subsequent books while I was swimming. My favorite practice, if I'm, you know, working on a moment in a book or, or a naughty question of kind of theory or interpretation, is to sort of take a swim with a sentence or two. And I just run it through my mind as I go out in the water. And, um, you know, I can't obviously write anything down because I'm swimming, but I, do try out a certain rhythm and then try out a slightly different rhythm and usually by the time I get back you know 45 minutes or so later I've got at least a line or two shaped the way I want them to be shaped and then I can go from there.
1: Oh, this is great. I feel like you've given us a mindset to to start Mm. talking about this, Um, (laughs) like a preface to to your preface, which uh, is what I'm going to quote right now, which is you write that we need a poetic history of the oceans, and Shakespeare, somewhat surprisingly, can help us tell one. And this is the preface to your earlier book at the bottom of Shakespeare's Ocean. So first, why do we need a poetic history of the sea?
2: Well, I, th- I think we need to take account of the ocean more intensely today because the ocean is coming to find us, right? In an age of rising sea levels and increasing frequency of destructive storms, water is getting into places where we don't want it to be, into our neighborhoods, into our basements, into our um, you know streets and infrastructure. And I think that a poetic history of the ocean's told through Shakespeare and other, you know, figures from cultural history is going to enable us to understand what it means to live intimately with salt water and also with other forms of water.
1: So, and now to the second part of that, why is it somewhat surprising that Shakespeare would help us tell a poetic history of the sea?
2: Well, I think that Shakespeare is like it, it shouldn't be surprising that almost anything is in Shakespeare because he's such an encyclopedic and, um, and sort of voracious writer that he, he finds everything in the world and tries to grapple with it in his writing. But I think that if you compare Shakespeare to a writer like Herman Melville, who was himself uh, a sailor and a mariner and a whaleman, you know, as far as we know, Shakespeare did not spend significant time at sea. He grew up near the Avon River in the Midlands in England, and he clearly, you know, knows something. He also lived in London, so he clearly knows something about waterborne labor and waterborne culture. I mean, he does have an awareness of global maritime trade, which is starting to affect England in the late 16th, early 17th century during his lifetime. Um, and I think that he is able to respond to the increasing centrality of waterborne transport in European and especially English national culture.
1: I I want to pick up on that, but first I want to go back a little and talk about what meanings the oceans held for writers before Shakespeare so that we can understand how he departs from them. So, So what history were they telling?
2: Sure. I mean, Shakespeare, of course, is thinking a lot about the history of classical literature and classical representations of mariners such as Odysseus and Aeneas in, in Virgil's Aeneid. The position of the shipwrecked sailor is a kind of iconic position of suffering in an uncomfortable and dangerous environment. And the traditional understanding of that is that the reason the sailor suffers shipwreck is because the gods are angry, in the case of Odysseus or Aeneas, or God is angry in the Christian tradition. So, in the case of someone like Jonah, whose ship is wrecked because Jonah is disobeying God in the Hebrew Scriptures. And... In Shakespeare's time, that traditional kind of theological understanding comes into contact with an increasing understanding of empirical and scientific ways of making sense of the sea. So you have an increasing sense of scientific and oceanographic understandings of how sea travel works. Meteorology is still in its infancy, uh, at least as a predictive science, but the uh, increasing, increasingly accurate mapping and understandings of things like prevailing winds and currents is making it possible to come up with other empirical explanations of why certain ships don't get to the places that they're going.
1: And then, on top of that, you have the Elizabethans and the Tudors encountering all these new realities of trade and and uh, European expansion. You, you, as you write, it was a time of 16th century writers' sea fever.
2: Yes, oh, absolutely. I mean, you have the arrival into the Americas in the late 15th and early 16th century, and then the, the, the bringing back to Europe all these stories about the you know the people who lived in Patagonia and in the Caribbean and in Mexico and in Peru, which are really setting on fire the imaginations of uh, European writers in the late 16th and early 17th century when Shakespeare' is writing.
1: Well, great. OK, let's get into the texts. And why don't we start with the wateriest, as you do in, in, at the bottom of Shakespeare's ocean. Um, you start with The Tempest and Ariel's song. So, Full Fathom Five, Thy Father Lies. Why don't you remind us of, of, of the song and the context and, and the narrative mm-hmm. it tells
2: yeah, so Ariel's song, um, which is right, it's the place I start in the book, and it is you know in some ways the the kind of center of Shakespeare's sea um, poetics. It's a it's a song that describes the drowned body of the king, the king who I'll come back to this in a minute, who is actually not drowned. He's safely on shore, and has even had his clothes dry cleaned by the magician Prospero. Um, but <laughs> but the song is about the consequences uh, aesthetic philosophical, and physical of being in the sea. So, those are pearls that were his eyes, nothing of him but doth suffer a sea change into something rich and strange. So it's about transformation. And I think it's traditional to read this as a kind of symbol of Shakespeare's art. I think that's the way T.S. Eliot reads it when he quotes it in The Wasteland. It's the way generations of Shakespeare critics and interpreters have understood the sea change as a representation of what art does, turns an ordinary thing into a beautiful and valuable thing. And one of the things that I wanted to add to that long history of interpreting Ariel's song is that it's also a description of the corrosive effects of salt water on human bodies. That it is true that the presence of salt water changes human bodies and also human cultures. But the idea that the corrosive effect of salt water is both deadly and also um, transforming and transfiguring that's what i wanted to to sort of draw out of that and it also seems really important to me that it's a that it's completely false that the king isn't dead. He's not at the bottom of the, of the sea. Five Fathoms is not actually all that deep. It's probably, I mean, in the clear waters of the Mediterranean or, or possibly Bermuda, which is one of the other possible locations for this, this island. You know, you can see Five Fathoms down. You can probably swim to it if you're, if you're like, really determined to. Well, um, I should have known
1: this, but <laughs> yeah. I didn't realize a fathom is just, what? Yeah, it's just six feet. Like, yeah, six feet. Yeah, six so feet. So that's only 30 feet. Yeah. yeah.
2: So so it's like it's far, it, but if you really want to get there, you can probably get there, and you can probably see it at least if the weather's good. So it's not like the inaccessible bottom, which Shakespeare writes about in other places and at other moments. But it, it so it's this. It's exactly the border between the sea that we have access to, which is mostly the top of the sea, and the sea that we don't have access. Like five five fathoms is like the transitional moment in which the sea is is accessible up to that point and then becomes inaccessible after that.
1: And why is that significant? What does that mean to you?
2: Because I think that Shakespeare is using that that place that borderline of the accessible and inac- inaccessible to as a representation of how humans interact with the ocean that we can go into it that we love to go into the ocean to a certain depth and we can't go any farther right so that it is this border space it is both a place that we can arrive to and enter partly but with difficulty only up to a point and then we have to get out as soon as we can in order to survive, that's as far as we can go, and I think Shakespeare's really fascinated with that place. Like, where's the farthest that we can get to, and what happens if we imagine that place as a as a source of value and also a source of beauty, and also a source of threat?
1: Well, you also in this chapter land on the idea that the ocean symbolizes a resistance to monarchism in *The Tempest*. So unpack that for us, please.
2: Sure, I mean, it is an image of the dead king, right? Um, and it is, and I think this connects also to the um, anti-authoritarian rhetoric of the bosun in the first scene, just before Ariel's song, the bosun is saying, you know, what cares these roars for the name of king? The idea that the storm, and in particular, the skilled labor of the sailor in the storm, that when that sailor is using his skilled labor to preserve the ship, the king just gets in the way. And Shakespeare wonderfully stages this for us, right? He has a whole bunch of Italian aristocrats come on board and get in the way of the sailor. And the sailor says, get out of my way. I have work to do, you know? And he's he's trying to um, survive this, you know, through technical labor. And Shakespeare throws in a little bit of maritime vocabulary that he almost certainly got from reading books, not from sailing on ships. But <laughs> um, but he, like, he stages this conflict between the hands-on knowledge of the practical. Practical sailor and the theoretical authority. You know, use your authority, says the bosun. Uh, and if you if you can, I will not hand a rope more. In other words, if if it's true that kings have this magical ability to create order, you know, then try it out and see how it works. Yeah, good <laughs> if luck. You're on a see ship in storm. Your... <laughs> <laughs> I
1: just did a went to an immersive tempest, and they had us all kind of in hanging out uh, with a bar and, and drinks uh, in a ship. They had built the lobby into a ship and then the storm started with all the bells and whistles and 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 the uh, the actors were pushing us out of the way. I mean the one percent was so useless in this storm.
2: Yes. Eg- exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um I love that. I, I I'm always fascinated to see how different productions handle the storm scene which i think is really hard to do because it's precisely about the limits of theatrical representation like what you can do with actors on stage mm-hmm. and uh, i've been to some wet ones um, <laughs> i've been in <to>, a <laughs> splash I've zone been to, I've, I've been in a splash zone um the more disruptive, the better, from from my point of view. Like that scene, it seems to me is designed to be really disruptive and difficult. Right, you, you want know, to a tempestuous feel Tempestuous noise of thunder and lightning heard. That's the stage direction. All
1: right, so you you can unfathom in Ariel's song, but you also focus on another word, year or yearly. Yeah. Um, what, what does it mean? And and why is it significant? And is it related to that wonderful line in the Philadelphia story movie, uh, my, she was yar.
2: My, she was yar. Yes, it's the <laughs> same word. It's an old, um, it's actually an old English word, meaning uh, crafter skill. And it is a word, and again, in the Philadelphia story, it's obviously used to describe a ship and indirectly the Catherine Hepburn character. But the the idea is that it is a technical representation of seaworthiness and ability to survive in the hostile, um, oceanic or or watery environment. And so, um, when the bosun uses it, it strikes me as this wonderful um, technical linguistic representation of his kind of labor. You know, if the the king represents authority or monarchy, the bosun Mm. is skilled. That kind of practical, hands-on technical skill, um, as opposed to theoretical or philosophical authority, um, strikes me as the thing that the bosun represents.
1: So you've already um, made it clear Shakespeare really didn't know much about ships or sailing or maritime mm-hmm. language, but except book, what he learned. Well, in he books. learned about it from books. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. but did he even swim in the ocean or or even a river? The river he, he lived near. A lot of people didn't know how to swim, right?
2: Yep, there is. um, So swimming in this era is a relatively unusual skill. There is one of the first English language translated out of the Latin, how to swim manuals, gets produced in the fifteen. 90s, I believe, Um, so during Shakespeare's adult lifetime, by Everard Digby, who was a professor at Cambridge. And he's clearly swimming in the rivers outside Cambridge. And it's a little bit controversial. It actually was banned for undergraduates at Cambridge for a period of time in the 90s, maybe because they were not being safe. But it is both a... um, you know, it's a thing that people are obviously somewhat interested in, and we see swimming characters in Shakespeare and in Spencer and in other 16th century English poets, but it's not a common skill, and there would have been relatively few people who could teach you.
1: Well, so it's interesting that you pair The Tempest with King Lear, Mm -hmm. and I kind of get it, because the whole second half of of the play, Lear is out in a storm, so there are a lot of Watery images and and uh, raging at the at the gods. Um, getting back to the idea of you know why the sea is so inhospitable, but but you argue that that means Lear becomes a maritime play in these storm scenes. So why? What does it mean to you to 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 put it in that context or to to phrase it that way?
2: For me, the second half of Lear becomes a maritime play in the sense that it's a play about living or trying to live in an inhospitable environment. That the ocean is our, you know, like, it's the part of the world which is least hospitable to human thriving or abiding, you know, that we can go there but not to stay. And so that moment in the second half of Lear, when he is uh, exposed to the storm, when he goes into the hovel with poor Tom and poor Tom is saying, fathom in half, fathom in half, you know, measuring the water that's starting to fill up the the hovel where he is um, taking shelter. Obviously, I'm thinking about the echo of that word. Fathom is the word in Ariel's song. Fathom is the word in poor Tom's hovel. And now Um, we know it's only
1: nine feet he's talking about. (laughs) which is (laughs) a lot though when you're
2: in a cave (laughs) it's a lot if you're inside Um, (laughs) but yes so I think about the the kind of way in which water sweeps into the the, it sweeps into England in the second half of King Lear as a, a moment in which the the landscape Becomes the inhospitable seascape, and reading King Lear as an environmental play, which is one of the things that um, you know, a, a lot of my own work is really trying to think about Shakespeare and literary works more generally as as equipment for living in a time of ecological crisis. That one of the things that Lear does, and the Tempest in a slightly different way, is shows us what happens if we get immersed and we have to figure out strategies for living in a world that is wetter and saltier and less hospitable than the world that we thought we were growing up in
1: and what strategies suggest themselves when you look at the play that way
2: in in lear you know, I mean, Lear is a tough one because the only strategy is to hang on until you can't hang on anymore, right? Like it is, it is until right, almost totally. everyone a, you a love of, dies, and then yes, you die. it's a it's it's a question of endurance, um, and and you know, endurance is ultimately unendurable, right? Break hard, I prithee, break is the is the kind of emotional core of the second half of of King Lear. I think that. There are other plays, including The Tempest, including Twelfth Night, that suggest that there are strategies, um, you know, social and human and political strategies, which might have to do with the way we treat refugees, for example, that enable us to survive in a flooded and flooding world. I also think a lot about swimming as a both a metaphorical and a practical practice, not just because I swim every day in the summertime, but also because the idea of training one's body to, to survive, at least for periods of time, in an inhospitable environment strikes me as a way of making sense of what it is like to be living in an inhospitable world.
1: Okay, Lear is a hard one. Let's move on to Othello. And and <laughs>
2: uh,
1: which is a play that I don't think uh, as having much to do with the sea and you can see that we don't see the sea, the ocean yeah. that much, but that it surrounds the play. So remind us where it pops up. There is a sea storm.
2: Yep, there is a sea storm which, you know, like Othello starts out as if it's going to be a play about war in which the, you know, the political elite in Venice say, Othello, okay, you may have, you know, run off with a fancy um, Venetian heiress, but what we really need you to do is to fight against the Turkish navy, because the Turkish navy is about to invade Venetian territory. And so it seems like it's going to be a war play, you know, like the one of the history plays or something. But then the storm comes, the storm completely annihilates the Turkish fleet, and it ends up being a play about domestic life. And one of the things we know about Othello is he's much more prepared to fight Turkish fleets and armies and much less prepared to deal with the uncertainties and the mysteries of married life and domestic life on shore.
1: Which is interesting, given this whole conversation. He's much more a creature of the ocean.
2: Well, Although, I mean, the the sailor in Othello is Iago. Iago's vocabulary is full of little nods to knots and other elements of sailor's technical language. And so there is this way in which Iago, although we don't know that he is a mariner per se, his particular skill and manipulative skill has some kind of connection to the ways in which sailors manipulate their environment.
1: Yeah, and you you key in here in the word compass.
2: Yeah. He is attuned to the fragility of a compass, right? The compass is a tool for order on a space of disorder and disorientation, the space of the sea. And Iago is particularly good at breaking all the things that Othello uses to keep himself compassed, to keep himself enclosed and whole and stable. And, you know, he will, over the course of the play, remove all of those from Othello. He will strip away the various kinds of order and authority that Othello believes that he has, um, all of which are, are, you know, unraveled, if you will, by his his sergeant, his ancient.
1: That's an interesting um, dichotomy you, or, or contrast you set up that uh, Iago's constantly changing. He's this agent of chaos. And there is something really rigid uh, it seems unhealthily rigid about Othello. And he's often played that way on stage. I'm, I feel like I'm pushed to see him that way.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think Othello's rigidity, I think his, his um, lack of flexibility is... I think is associated in the play with his kind of fear of the ocean or fear of water, fear of dissolution. He has that long speech about the Pontic Sea in which he says that that you know he he understands himself in opposition to the movement and violence of the sea. He is going to be the the stubborn, stable element of meaning in opposition to the changeable sea. He is going to be perfectly still and reliable. And I think that that is, like, there's obviously something admiral about it, but it is ultimately, and I think this is the thing that Shakespeare is really getting at in this play, that to set yourself up as the icon of stability is also setting yourself up to fracture, to break. To to be unable to respond to change as change inflicts itself in your world.
1: Okay, switching gears completely. Mm-hmm. Why do we need Moby Dick to look at comedy of errors? And I and I should uh, say throughout your work you do discuss many writers of seas and oceans from Derek Walcott to to Melville, and you've already referenced Moby Dick earlier. But why is Moby Dick such a a touch point?
2: Yeah, I mean Moby Dick is. You know, in addition to Shakespeare, Moby Dick is the is the sea story that I come back to the most in my in my work and my thinking. Uh, it is you know the great nineteenth uh, century American novel of oceanic globalization. Um, there's it's a like way. It's like the
1: Britannica, the Encyclopedia yes. Britannica yeah. of the ocean. It, it, <laughs> it
2: has everything in it, especially you know all the whale facts you could possibly want. Um, and so I think about Comedy of Errors. I mean the the moment in Moby Dick that I link ex- explicitly to Comedy of Errors is the moment in which Pip is drowning, uh, or he's been left to drown. He'll be picked up eventually, but he and he has this vision of divinity. That's the opening scene, or the backstory opening scene of Comedy of Errors, right? In which the 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 two Antipholuses and their two servants are shipwrecked and separated, and they have this experience of of the rupture of shipwreck as a moment of you know a, a glimpse behind the veil into the supernatural order of the world for melville And they're
1: transformed. And
2: for, yes. Yeah. By and the they're sea. they're transformed geographically, physically. I mean they they still look alike, which is why it's the comedy, but they are radically transformed and the project of the play is to reunite them. So, you know, again the story of Pip in Moby Dick, who is who gets a glimpse into the radical divine structures that sit behind shipwreck and immersion, uh, and it drives him mad. So again, Melville in the story of Pip tells a tragedy about shipwreck and immersion that Shakespeare will transform, at least in that play, into a comedy. And so I think that the, the insight that being subject to the power of the sea is the shared starting point, both for Comedy of Errors and for Moby Dick.
1: Comedy of Errors, first of all, no one can keep it straight, and we're just going to leave it at that. That's okay. You <laughs> explained what you were what you're talking about very well. But, but Comedy of Errors, and, and you point out Twelfth Night, also explore, they both explore a society saturated with ocean. So there's a beach culture there? Barbie's Barbie's Ken could have just
2: ruled. Yeah, I was I was was wondering about that. Yeah, (laughs) Uh, whose whose job is Beach? I think it might be Viola's job, although she's more eloquent, perhaps. Um, (laughs) And and you know, like the whole question of whether Viola is a is a Barbie or a Ken is, of course. Oh, one, that's of the, one, for one of the, the great ages. one of the great mysteries of the play, <laughs> um, you know, I've seen productions of it that make it a kind of beach culture, a, a Caribbean culture, and I kind of like them. But the the idea of the play as um, you know in a place of festivity seems really central, um, even though you know Olivia is in mourning and Orsina is in love melancholy at the beginning. Like there's something about particularly the energy of Sir Toby that you know. Like Sir Toby is definitely the kind of person you'd like to run into on your beach occasion, oh, I, hell unless yeah. <laughs> 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 you know the guy who would be you know at the next table, but you'd soon know all there is to, to know about him. But um, the the idea, the the kind of surge of festivity in the play is seems to me associated like it doesn't necessarily come from beach culture in this in Shakespeare's time but it seems to connect to beach culture in the present and in the long history of beach recreation since the 18th century.
1: Okay, now we're going to bring it full circle because humans survive the sea in Twelfth Night, but in Timon of Athens, the seashore is Timon's final resting place. So what does this and Timon's words in this play say about the evolution of Shakespeare's thinking about the seas?
2: Yeah, I mean, I would not want to, Suggest that there's a kind of progression in Shakespeare from happier seas to, to catastrophic or destructive seas. Well, we're i are not really think sure that,
1: when he wrote what. Well, that yeah.
2: exactly, and it's clearly. I mean, we do think that the Tempest is later than Timon, but the chronologies I think are, are still somewhat uncertain. But I do think that Timon is really committed to the deadliness of the environment, you know, to sort of being an environment which is ultimately unsurvivable. I think that's also true of the second half of Lear, and obviously those are plays that are connected to each other probably in time and and in poetics or kind of nihilistic grandeur, I guess. But the the way in which Time of Athens... Understands the sea, the kind of restless, always moving, unstable sea, as the as the ideal resting place for its misanthropic hero. It's because there is nothing permanent about the sea that there can be no monument that will stay. That is the 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 appropriate place to to erase Timon, this character who rejects everything that society had to offer or to take from him. So he goes into this. I mean, in some ways it's it's a dissolution. It's a moment in which the corrosive force of the sea will dissolve Timon. So it's not in some ways unlike what happens, at least in the imagination, to the king in the in Ariel's song to bring it back full circle in our conversation. Or Ahab. But, yes, or Ahab, who also, you know, goes down with the whale. That there is, and and in the book I do think about Timon and Ahab as as parallel tragic figures, that the moment it w- in which there's an aesthetic version of this in ariel's song in which the thing that comes back from the loss of the king into the waters is coral and pearls and beauty and then there's a a kind of deeply human and tragic one which comes in timon and in lear and and in moby dick as well right that there's just like the 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 ultimate evacuation of this massive titanic human presence
1: we had Billy Collins on the program not too long ago, and um, he he has that poem where he imagines Shakespeare sitting next to him on an airplane so uh, it made me wonder if you you take Shakespeare with you into the water.
2: certainly, I take lines of Shakespeare with me into the water all the time right i mean i I, I and especially like if i 'm in in the in the middle of the semester, if I'm getting ready to teach King Lear or Hamlet or The Tempest or something, I will often sort of like revisit some of the central passages that I know I'm going to try to um, make make fully available to the students the next day. So yeah, I I definitely think of Shakespeare as a swimming companion.
1: Oh, it has been such a pleasure Mm. to talk with you. Thank you.
2: Thank you. All right. Take care, Barbara.
0: That was Steve Mentz, interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Mentz's new book, An Introduction to the Blue Humanities, is out now from Rutledge. This episode was produced by Matt Frasica. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer with help from Leonor Fernandez. We had technical help from Robert Scaramuccia in New Haven and Jenna McClelland at Voice Tracks West in Studio City, California. Final mixing services provided by Clean Cuts at Three Cs Inc. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on your podcast platform of choice to help others find the show. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge in the arts. Our building in Washington, D.C., has been under renovation for the past three years. But next year, we'll open our doors again. Come visit us on Capitol Hill in 2024. Take in a performance in our Elizabethan theater, and check out the world's largest collection of first folios, all 82, on display together for the very first time. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.